everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing The Son of Neptune. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm doing all right. I, I went for electrolysis earlier, so I spent an hour of my day having an electrified needle poked into my face, which is exactly as painful as it sounds. I thought you were going to say it's exactly as painful as these chapters. <laughs> no, there, there's some okay stuff in these chapters. How are you today, Jacqueline? Uh, I am also doing good. I've got my first like full weekend off in a while. Fuck yeah. And I'm using it to uh, go a couple states away to a wrestling show. Oh my god. Listen. You know what? This is This makes sense for you. It does. It, it, it's only an hour and a half away. The, the part uh-huh. of the country I'm in is very small. You're in the small baby part of the country. Uh-huh. But, speaking of s- small baby, I don't know. Uh- <laughs> speaking of small enclaves of evil empires. Uh-huh. Uh, shall we <laughs> go into uh, the summaries for this week? We we shall. You told me that you had something unconventional planned for these, and I am both curious and a little bit scared. It's slightly unconventional. It's not. It's not as unconventional okay. as I first thought it would be. All right. Uh, but I want to just like make everything as clear as possible, and I feel like if I told things directly how they happened in these chapters, it would feel kind of jumpy. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to break format a little bit. Uh, you ready? Interesting. Yeah. All right. Chapters 5 and 6. Hazel. Okay, so here's the deal right up front. Hazel Levesque is 13 years old, and she has been since her last birthday, December 17th, 1941, in New Orleans. On that day, after getting a kiss from her crush, Sammy, she goes home and finds her mom, Marie Levesque, aka Queen Marie, who makes her living off telling fortunes and selling charms, having a conversation with some disquieting voice that she's channeling. The voice is telling her to pack up and move to Alaska so she can be under new protection and strike back at the gods, as well as get away from the reputation Hazel has as cursed since she's always finding precious metals that make people have bad luck. Hazel runs off at hearing that and meets her dad, Pluto, god of death, who introduces himself, says some cryptic stuff about how there's a reason Hazel is cursed, and then gives her a sketchbook before then going to try and convince Marie to stay. It doesn't work. So, how'd she get to Camp Jupiter? There's still stuff to be filled in, but she did go to Alaska, then she was in the underworld for a long time, and then Nico took her out as a sort of sister replacement, since Bianca had apparently chosen to be reincarnated and brought her to Camp Jupiter. Now back to the present, Nico is pretending to not know Percy and exposits about Gaia and the Titans until Frank comes to take Percy away. Hazel has a crush on Frank. Now that they're alone, Nico and Hazel sit at Pluto's shrine, and we get to hear about how they think someone named Alcyonius is responsible for what's going on with death. Nico also tries to reassure her about how she belongs here, but at that point, she has a violent flashback where she's transported back in time and relives all the stuff that I just talked about at the start. Nico assumes that these are probably because she lived in the underworld for so long. When she's back in the present, she says she definitely doesn't want to go back up north, but Nico says Percy will be there to help. Chapter 7. Before he can clarify why having Percy around would be helpful at all, the horns are blown for evening muster to begin, and Hazel dashes off so she doesn't get punished for being late. 
On the way, she demonstrates that she started learning to master metal bending by tripping over a gold <laughs> bar, getting angry, and turning it into a little ball she shoots into the earth's core. The evening muster is a lot of ceremony, made a lot less impressive without their eagle standard, which is supposed to be the symbol of the Legion, until Octavian announces Percy is qualified for the Legion. Unfortunately, he doesn't have any letters of reference or credentials on hand, so Hazel has to stand for him and accept the position of both mentor and person who will also be punished if he fucks up. The fifth cohort accepts Percy into the rank, and Reyna dismisses everyone to go have dinner. Chapter 8. Hazel at dinner, Percy enjoys a cheeseburger and blue soda. He gets to know the fifth cohort a bit better. They're losers who are looked down on because Hazel is a daughter of Pluto and a horse rider. Frank is a stinky old archer. And their centurion, Dakota, is a Kool-Aidaholic son of Bacchus. Not only that, but they're the ones who lost the camp's Aquila, the eagle standard. The first time was back during the first Jewish revolt against Rome. And then, the most recent time, was when a senior praetor from the 5th cohort named Michael Varus tried to do the Great Prophecy a bit early, and ended up getting a ton of people killed and most of the camp's imperial gold supply, along with the eagle, lost in Alaska. Now that the eagle's gone, the camp has been a lot less protected magic-wise. Jason was also actually a member of the 5th cohort, and he was improving the reputation until, well, you know... After a quick visit from Don the Fawn, who can smell Percy's faint, pre-existing empathy link with some totally unknown other fawn, Percy reassures everyone that nerds are actually epic, and the call comes for dinner to be over and for war games to begin. Time to get their asses kicked. So Jane, what'd you think of these chapters? I was terrified that you were gonna, like, do a poem about the chapters or something. A poem? I don't... I've been reading um, A Memory Called Empire recently, which is a, yeah. a book about someone going to like space Byzantium, like the Space Byzantine Empire, where everybody speaks in like poetry. Uh-huh. But for some reason, I got it. In, I'd gotten that into my head by association, like, oh, Jacqueline's going to do these summaries in an unconventional way. Maybe she's written a poem. I should have written a poem. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> uh, these chapters are another mixed bag, I would say. Yeah, I I agree. I honestly, hmm, they have lower highs but higher lows. Hmm, yeah, no, I see what you mean. There's there's not the outright fuck ups that we had last week, but there's still some weird shit. And there's not like the great great Percy stuff either, but there's also some cool stuff. I I want to like these so bad. Like I feel like everything to do with Percy and Nico is genuinely great. Like, I love how their characters are progressing in this book. It feel, This feels much more like a sequel than Lost Hero, which felt like a spin-off. Mm-hmm. And I, I like seeing how they're progressing in this series, but I hate everything else that's being introduced around them. That's... I think that's fair. I mean, I mean, I guess we should talk about, like, the person whose story this is here, though, because this is Hazel. What do you think of her? Uh, okay, I'll... It'd be unfair to say that I hate Hazel. Hazel's actually a pretty cool character. We, we've joked before about um, Hades just keeping these fucking kids in, like, some cryotube somewhere. Uh-huh. That It apparently just keeps happening. We just keep getting them fucking time-traveling. No, here's the thing, is that it seems like Hades was, like, the one who stuck to the pact the most. Yeah. Um, and that's still true, because he he... I'd, like... These kids are still from, like, 
pre-World War, or not pre-World War Two, but you know what I mean. Uh, I mean, I mean, he had them before the war. I guess that's true. Yeah. So it's I don't know. It just seems very like I I'm glad that the commitment is there to keeping Hades like yeah he's the one who stuck with it like it's kind of weird but I don't know it's interesting. Yeah. I just. Everything about Nico in these chapters is fucking heartbreaking in a good way. Yeah. Like, I. Reading him almost call Hazel Bianca was like getting kicked in the balls. No, yeah, like. Oh, uh, this is this is really working for me so far. Just the Nico and Hazel relationship, and especially Nico's end of it, because I, I care about Nico, like, as a character. Yeah. Like, he, we've become invested in him over the course of these books. And, like, we were fucking. I, we talk about we don't talk about it a lot but I think one of our favorite endings is probably like the Titans curse with yeah and everything spinning off from there really just oh you're right that it's heartbreaking that's that's the right word but I, I love that there's like there's an additional twist to this that kind of makes it more tragic which is like Hazel isn't a replacement for Bianca Nico is the replacement for Bianca because he's the older sibling now and it kind of seems like he's trying to he's trying to be there for Hazel in a way that Bianca ultimately wasn't for him because she bailed to join the hunters yeah it's just oh, uh, God. Uh, my heart <laughs> I didn't even think about that I'm getting goosebumps now <laughs> <laughs> oh my god this yeah no that's the thing is that he like like, I joked in the summaries about, like, oh, he grabbed a sister replacement, but it just, it seems <laughs> like he did just, like, he cares about Hazel. Like, he's, he genuinely wants to, like, make this work to make things better for her. And that's a great turn for this character, who, by and large, has been sort of a loner. Like, yeah, he's been very standoffish. He doesn't really want to work with everyone. And now he has a connection. And it's interesting that he's made that connection at Camp Jupiter instead of, like, Camp Half-Blood. Yeah, he's never really seemed to get on with anyone at Camp Half-Blood besides Percy. Like, he, he tended to stick to the shadows quite a lot. But he's, like, he definitely does seem to feel more comfortable being, like, openly around the place at Camp Jupiter. Yeah, he would not, he wouldn't even come into Camp Half-Blood. And I'm sure that, like, you know, there's probably some, like, trauma there. Mm-hmm. But also, like... I wonder if he does just feel, it seems like he does just feel more comfortable, like, for Camp Jupiter to be, like, a place that he can just pop into every once in a while, like, say hi, and just, like, be the the weird Pluto kid. I also just, I love when this happens with a series where, like, you'll get a character who is, like, a major component of the story previously, and they are now kind of, like, the character who is in the know, and, like, has a lot of knowledge that maybe, like, the rest of them don't have. Because, like, it's really weird that Nico knew about Camp Jupiter, right? Yeah. It doesn't seem like... He, I mean, he wouldn't have found out about that from Chiron. He seems to be, like, one of the few Greek demigods who knows about this. And we know, like, from the past that he can gain a lot of information through, like, the underworld and from the mm -hmm. gods and stuff like that. So that's probably, like... Honestly, Pluto could have told him, maybe. Like, who knows? Well, yeah, because he mentions that he's, like, he's Pluto's ambassador... So he's possibly, like, doing proper day-to-day -day work for his dad. That, that might be why he has all this knowledge. Right, which puts him in an interesting position. Yeah. Because, 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 
like I think on the surface, the reason that Nico isn't saying anything like up to Percy, it seems like is because he doesn't want to interfere with like Hera's master plan, the like the plan mm-hmm. of the gods, the way, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But now that what you've said before, and just like our conversation up to now, it kind of also feels like he doesn't want to like tell Percy because he doesn't want to like interfere with his life here. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that, but you're right. This is kind of a whole different dynamic for him. And even even though I'm sure he does consider Percy one of his friends, Percy knowing who he is could kind of fuck that up. Yeah. I love Nico. Yeah, I love Nico. What a great character. Like people yeah. the, people weren't lying that that Nico sure does best character in Percy Jackson. I don't know the best, <laughs> but like he's really good. Definitely. I I saw a YouTube thumbnail. Sorry to get off track. I saw. I want to get back to Hazel in a minute. Give her a proper deal. But mm. he well, said Hazel, and then we immediately started talking about Nico. Yeah, I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> we will talk about Hazel. Um, but I saw a YouTube thumbnail the other day that was like the strongest characters in Percy Jackson ranked, and it was like, uh, it was like number one, Nico, number two. And then it was like number two. And I'm pretty sure it had Leo on the thumbnail, and I was like, "Fuck yes!" <laughs> I feel like the strongest characters in Percy Jackson are probably the gods. Probably, I mean, maybe it was like strongest demigods or something. Okay. Okay, but let's talk about Hazel for real now, because, like you said, she is she is kind of interesting, actually. Like, what 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 here appeals to you about Hazel? I mean, I mean. Part of this is just um, I I was deprived of my like Jason Winter Soldier Man Out of Time thing last book. Yes, uh, and I'm getting that from Hazel this book. So I'd be lying if I said I wasn't enjoying it on that level. But also, I just like that it kind of it kind of emphasizes what we were talking about with Nico about him taking on this more caring role. That like we see that she's had this like really traumatic, difficult past with some stuff that's even worse that we haven't even seen yet. And so it is like, it's nice to be able to flash forward to the present and see like, no, Nico's looking after her now. He's like looking out for her in a way that her family wasn't before. Definitely. Hazel has like a very rocky, I guess, just like history. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just like she went to the segregated school, obviously, like everyone, like, like she didn't even have any friends there. Just like everyone is super mean to her. And because she was like, oh, she's cursed. And... I, I I don't know. I it feels kind of weird, I guess, to just be like kind of, there was like the blanket statement there of like she hoped that she would have friends like among the black kids at her school. Uh but even they were just like they beat her up and took her lunch money and stuff. Hazel didn't understand how other black kids could be so mean. Is the exact quote. Yeah, that's right. And there's like simultaneously like a um that's very like heartbreaking. That's like a like she should be able to find some like solidarity and friendship and also uh-huh. like that's i feel like this is a, a series with like not many black characters at all i mean it's beckendorf and hazel so far right yeah yeah like not counting the kane chronicles oh yeah and just like oh yeah of course all all the mean little black kids like that i don't know yeah i i kind of get it i've been bullied by other trans people <laughs> no i mean for sure for <laughs> sure i'm just I guess I'm giving Rick Riordan a critical a, a, a critical look from one eye. Yeah, so, some sometimes you just got to side eye him. Yeah, that's it. But actually, one role that she does fulfill here is, like, you're right that she is partially a parallel to Jason, 
but I think much more this is like okay you you get introduced to a character the second perspective character in a book and uh-huh. it's this girl who has a secret that she will not tell any of the other characters about uh to me this is a piper oh you're right you're right this is very piper because she, she's even got like she's had some previous history with gaia spoiler alert that um we don't really know about or the other characters don't know about like i'm assuming that the voice talking through her mother was gaia i would think it's probably chronos actually i'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> put my hat in the hat in the ring okay. there i'm gonna say don't it was definitely my chronos. hopes up you know, I, I, I think I'm like, I'm remembering some of this series, actually, Jane, and I think this might be Kronos. Don't you dare. Don't do this to me. <laughs> oh, God. Miss you every day, weird Titan man. <laughs> I'm just imagining you making a Kronos fan cam now. <laughs> I'm sure those will fucking exist when the TV show comes out. God, probably. I'll make a backbiter fan cam. Yes, yeah. What if they don't put backbiter in the fucking TV show? I will riot. It's the coolest weapon in the series. You have to. It really is. The weapons, the weapons so far in this book are not impressing me. Yeah, no, I, I there, there is an element to it that I kind of understand, which is like there's the twofold thing of one, one of the last centurions fucked up and lost all their imperial gold for the cool weapons. Yes. And also they fight much more like a traditional army, so standardized weapons makes more sense. But you're right, these kind of suck. Yeah, like, I'm not, it's not bad because, like, exactly those two elements you just said, it makes complete sense. Like, we get the Greek side, and they're all kind of like, even though they can work well together, I would not describe Camp Half-Blood as, like, an army. Like, they've, they've acted as an army before, but they... They feel more more like a collection of individual heroes. Yeah, they're a loose collection of heroes from myth all teaming up, is what it feels like with Camp Half-Blood. And something that is like done well with Camp Jupiter, another differentiation that I think works, is that like they are very much they feel like this unified force. Yeah, definitely. What the fuck were we talking about again? That uh, Hazel. Hazel. <laughs> Poor Hazel, I'm sorry. Well, uh, I, she's cool. She's I, cool. I'm. She's cool. I feel like we're getting a lot of Hazel backstory. Maybe not a huge amount of characterization yet. Yeah, she seems to have a lot of anger inside of her. We know this. She's kind of a, a a bit of a sad little meow meow. Oh, she is a poor little meow meow. I usually think of like middle aged men, but <laughs> you know, it's it's. I guess it's fine for a thirteen year old girl to also be a sad little meow meow. I thought this was just, like, generally a term for a character who just goes through a lot of horrible shit. It is, but I just, like, I there's, like, the patheticness element that you can only, that, to me, like, is most prevalent in, like, 50-year-old scraggly men. <laughs> like Rick Riordan. <laughs> Rick, Rick Riordan is not my poor little meow meow. I want to be clear. Rick Riordan, I would imagine, is doing all right for himself. I'm sure he's doing just, he seems to be doing great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where it's like, Hazel is the perspective character here. Other than the backstory, like, one of these chapters is basically just a Percy chapter. Yeah, it it kind of is. Which I guess is is a new way of getting around, like, the the self-imposed limits. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
what else to say about Hazel. She she has crushes. She she has a crush on Checks Notes Frank. She has a, a uh, Checks Notes. Uh, sorry, what Fred? I believe his name was Fred. Uh, was it Fred? <laughs> no, it's not Fred. <laughs> it's I'm, I'm, the fact that I believed you is uh, not a good sign. Frank, I'm sure Frank is gonna be is gonna be cool. For now, he's kind of nothing. Like his 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 little bumbling act is kind of one note so far. Like I yeah. like a good little bumbling character. Like I don't I don't dislike Frank so far, but he's not super fleshed out yet. Maybe we should wait for his chapters next time to really get into that. Yeah, because we've got if the pattern continues, we've got four Frank chapters coming up. Uh huh. And she also had a crush on uh, Sammy. Sammy, her friend from the past, who I guess he could conceivably show up, because this takes place in 2010. I think so. So if he was like, what, 13 in 1941, that'd be... In his 90s? Ah, my head hurts. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. He'd be old, but conceivably he could still be alive. Yeah. It'd be so fucked up if it was like Pluto being like, "Ah, here's your, like, I I didn't let him die. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't let him die so that you could come back to him." Jesus Christ! That's horrifying. I don't know why. I'm. That's too fucked up. Actually, what's with? Okay, okay, hey, Pluto. Let's move on to Pluto. Actually, Pluto is introduced here, and okay, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Jane is going to go fucking like gear five. She's about to fucking <laughs> go super saiyan. Uh, Jane is about to digivolve. It's uh, should I take this or should you? Uh, I feel I, I, I can take this, I think. Okay. Without having a stroke. Wishing you the best. So, you know how. Um, Hades is introduced in Lightning Thief, and the implication is kind of made that he looks like Hitler. And it comes up that one time, and then never again. Nobody ever mentions that shit again. And it kind of seems like it was one of those kind of whack-ass plot points from um, Lightning Thief that was just kind of swept under the rug, like a lot of the World War II stuff from that book was. Was it even uh, specifically? I, I want to like. Was it even specifically Hitler there? Was it? I feel like it was just like, oh, like he looked like Mussolini, Hitler, and all of them wrapped into one or something like that. Yeah, it was like he looked like um, Napoleon, Hitler, and Bin Laden. I believe was the uh, the list. That that's right. Okay. Um, and in this one, he it just straight up explicitly says he kind of looked like Hitler. Yeah, uh, uh, Hazel specifically Nicole's like he looked like the terrible Adolf Hitler fellow, but without the mustache. <laughs> why like, why simply I, do not because you can't introduce a character say he looks exactly like adolf hitler and then try and also in the same chapter make him like a very like like very sympathetic and like that kind of thing hey i have another thing you can't uh-huh. introduce your series first like black character as a pov character and then reveal one chapter in that they're fucking related to Hitler. You shouldn't do this. You should not do that. I mean, Pluto shows up with some crayons and some pads for Hazel. God forbid that her art career doesn't take off. (laughs) (laughs) 
you okay? I fell down off my chair, but I'm back. Hello. That's... (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. No, okay, like, the thing is... Is... Oh, it's it's so... The optics of this are so bad. The the, the thing, I should not be able to make that joke. Is the problem here. But he gives you every single piece of rope. <laughs> Rick Riordan says, here, I've been really thinking about hanging myself lately. Here's, I, I, I've, I've been really thinking about wanting to be, I've been really thinking about someone shooting me. Here's a gun. <laughs> like the, the, These chapters are just to continue that metaphor, Rick handing us meter after meter of rope. Yes. And okay, I'm 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 calm now. Um, why? What's the purpose? Because okay, I genuinely don't know. Hades gets described as this once, and then we we in further books it's not mentioned. We we let's let's analyze the text. Let's look at this with a critical eye. What's the purpose of uh, bringing this back when it's Pluto and not Hades? Because we know that sometimes the Roman and like. Uh, Greek versions look different. It seems like the Roman version specifically is the one who looks exactly like Hitler. I suppose that's true. Yeah, he's got like more of a stronger resemblance than Hades does. I guess it could be part of that like, um, you know what? We, we could be really, really sympathetic to Rick here and say that maybe because it's the Roman form, there's kind of, there's the more militaristic, imperialist kind of genocidal uh, aspects come to the surface and that's why Pluto looks more like that and that could be part of maybe Rick being a not romanticizing Rome quite as much in these books could be building up to something like that I think that's a really good sympathetic reading and I simply have to accept that reading uh, or else (laughs) my brain will explode (laughs) I hope that's what it I hope I'm proven wrong I mean there's no other reading is the truth of it like that like like I have one other Okay, go ahead. Uh, which is um, that Rick Ryden thinks it's an own on Hitler to say that he's related to the series' first black character and first queer character. I don't think so. I desperately I d- hope that's not the case. I, d- I don't think Rick Ryden is trying to own Hitler. But I don't he think he's trying to do epic dunks. <sighs> I hope not. I just why 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 he's stamping I, I, on a rake with a hand grenade taped to it. Yes, that is exactly. <laughs> it's it's an incredibly like to to be very serious. It's an incredibly uh, unnecessary detail that adds not much at all to the story outside of the possible reading that we presented earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, outside of that, it acts as mostly a. It, it it kind of it muddles the reading because he is uh dis- because he is described as looking like Hitler and then is given like he's tr- as trying to be like the the sort of sympathetic dad figure. And yeah, it's it's very tasteless to be a bit more serious for a second. Yeah, it, it muddles it, and uh, even even with the first reading, I think it still muddles it. But yeah, definitely. I, Outside of that, I do like him showing up here. Like, I, I think Pluto showing up here is sort of that very, like, uh, typical, like... It acts in a very typical way of this kinds of stories of, like, the character very literally running into their destiny, I guess. Yeah, I, I think everything with Pluto outside of that 
extremely fucking whack description is actually pretty good in these chapters. Yes. Like, this this is very consistent with Hades uh, that we've seen up to this point, but, like, kind of Romanized, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's kind of the, the, the way that we always see the gods interacting with their kids is cruising in out of nowhere, having not paid child support for God knows how long, kind of acting oh, yeah, as if sure. they... They have a stake in the kid's life when they've done nothing to help raise them, and the parent obviously not being too hot on that. Yes. Oh, when I say sympathetic dad, I don't mean like I, I should clarify that I don't mean like that he's a very sympathetic like as a dad. I just mean mm-hmm. that he is like he's doing sympathetic actions here. Yeah, and he's technically advocating for the right course of action, which is don't follow the mysterious voice luring you north. Yes. Yes. I'm really sad that my uh, Hades secret good guy theory from Lightning Thief didn't pan out. How so? Well, because back then I thought, like, you know, Hades, unlike the other gods, kind of stuck to his word when Percy was concerned. But uh, we never really saw a lot more of that. I, I would say that we kind of, like, in the background got that fulfilled. Like, he never, like, came riding out in a blaze of glory or whatever to help everyone. But he was pretty consistently an ally this is true and i think in the, he played if i remember right he played at least somewhat of a role in the final battles and i suppose that's at least consistent with him not breaking the pact yeah oh hades oh pluto i'm just simply going to imagine him as um the one from the super giant game i'll just imagine him as the dog the dog pluto the dog <laughs> You know what? That's an improvement. I I actually want to talk here about um. Per, this is interesting because I didn't think about this until like my second reading. This okay. is the first time we've ever directly seen or interacted with Percy outside of his own perspective. Yeah, you're right. Uh, hmm. And it's weird and kind of like super cool, actually. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's it's almost kind of funny that Percy, like, when he's around, almost seems to, like, warp the narrative around it and turn it into a Percy chapter, even when it's, he's not the perspective character. That's true. And I just also love how he comes off to everyone as, like, this guy is, like, weirdly powerful. Like, Hazel is, like, constantly, like, oh, I feel like I have to, like, judge his, like power like his like she's like oh he's weirdly cunning like he's doing like weirdly cunning things and that's like Mm -hmm. i have to evaluate this guy and like she specifically asks nico like is he dangerous and nico is like yes he is dangerous and that's like that's a conversation that i love to hear i love to hear that kind of shit like outside of the context of the main character of first five books like yeah he's dangerous like he's not gonna hurt all of you but he can hurt people yeah, it's it's really cool, and I love that you can, like... He has... One of the changes from, like, the start of Lightning Thief, especially, is that he has this kind of, like, infectious confidence. Where you can, like... You can tell that even if even if he doesn't remember it, this guy has some, like, big wins under his belt. Like, he is sure of himself, and he's sure of the people around him, and he, like, has every right to be. And that, that's just a cool position to be in for a character that we spent so much time with. Yeah, it honestly, I think this is one of the book's best. This is one of the best parts of the book so far for me. Yeah. Is getting to is getting to see Percy in that way. Like I think it's incredibly well earned. I also uh, I really love that um, when Percy is at dinner, he gets a soda and it's blue, 
and he doesn't remember why, but it makes him happy. Yeah, that's oh, that's one of those sweet, small little details. It's like the camp beads. It makes you sad and it makes you happy. It made me especially sad when I realized that uh, he's been missing for months and Sally must be absolutely fucking beside herself. Yeah, oh god. Well, no, she's <laughs> she's fine. She's hanging out with Medusa. Oh yeah, they're, they're, they're chilling. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh no, I've... Because we don't even hear about that. Like, I, I, there's no reason we would hear about it in The Lost Hero. But she must be part of the search party, right? Yeah, because she was, like, she was willing to go out and fight during the Battle of Manhattan. I would imagine that, like, she has demanded that Annabeth let her help with that. Do you want me to say, like, the saddest sentence I can think of that I just thought of? Do it. Do you think before everything was revealed in The Lost Hero... Like, Annabeth just assumed that Percy, after a lot of thinking, was like, oh, he must have gone back to Calypso. <laughs> I think we discussed this theory at the time. I, that Percy I, was, like, chilling out with Calypso. No, I but like, in a, I guess I just mean, like, do you think that's, like, I feel like that's something that would have, like, at least crossed her mind, and it's making me very sad. And the, the extremely sad thing that I thought of was um, maybe Annabeth, like, used the mist to wipe Sally's memory of Percy temporarily. Oh, no, the Harry Potter thing. Yeah, but good. Yeah. I that'd be. I don't think we've ever seen someone, like, warping the mist that, like, directly outside of, like, gods and stuff. Yeah, we saw that Annabeth could manipulate the mist a bit, and I think Lightning Thief, because uh, Chiron had shown her how to do it. But yeah, not to that degree. Yeah, I... Oh, Jesus. There's another Harry Potter thing here. Oh, no. Um, it's it's very small. It's just, like, something about all the all the campers sitting in the mess hall and, like, the wind spirits, like, transporting them their favorite food. Um, I am side-eyeing this so hard. <laughs> it's giving Harry Potter. Don't do it. Don't. Don't do it. Just say that they get paid. Please. <laughs> And they get paid. Don't trip on this other fucking rake. Listen, I, to be fair, it only like, I'm not even, it only, it's the same thing as Percy Jackson. Like, it's the same thing as Camp Half-Blood. They also have yeah. like mysterious spirits that give them food. But I just didn't think about it until now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just hoping that it comes up once and never again. <laughs> I mean, I'm, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's, it's really fine. Who cares? But an element here that like I wasn't expecting to get introduced. I guess speaking of like what Percy's got under his belt, uh they specifically ask for like credentials when you are accepted into joining the like yeah. legion. That's so fucking weird. That's such a departure from everything. Cuz it does imply that like the survival rate for Roman demigods is a lot higher. Yeah, and we already know that, but it's so, like, there's, like, a culture of nepotism here, and that's, yeah. like, fascinating to me. Yeah, I, the, one of the things that I really like about um, the chapter where, like, Percy's getting inducted into the Legion is, um, like, we don't get a lot of it right here, but the amount of opportunities for, like, backstabbing and politicking that are being opened up, which is what you really want for any fiction, like, centered around Rome. Like, I'm, I'm excited at, like... The back, the backstabbing, the nepotism, the the petty power plays and stuff like that that we could get from this. Same, like, and 
I, I think this, and it's it's the kind of thing we're literally every single episode asking for. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I'm glad that that path is being opened up. I, as always, really hope it's taken. I, and I, I'm like thinking about a character like Octavian just like could not exist at Camp Half-Blood. Like, the 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 kind the closest kind of asshole you get there is like Drew Tanaka, who yeah, and Drew got a teeth kicked in by Piper, so yeah, like the closest thing you can get is like oh one of the camp counselors is a jerk. You can't get like oh the like leadership of this army of this military are like there is corruption and they are willing to like use family ties. Like none of that could happen at Camp Half Blood. The city augury who is descended from an emperor and has, like, power over our prophecies is blackmailing me. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Like, that's just, like, a good sentence for a conflict. Yeah. Moving moving away from the future and toward the past, uh, I, I was so excited when we got the snippet about uh, the 12th Legion losing their, um, losing their original eagle, like, um, in Judea. Yeah, that was cool. I I thought that Rick had finally, I mean, amongst all the other stuff being introduced early in this book, I thought he had finally gone off the deep end and was giving us, like, the Legion that killed Jesus or something. <laughs> oh my, okay. No, okay, I'll, I'll, I, I will take a moment. As someone who, as someone who ha- many times has said, wow, I really loved history in high school and just, like, reading about history, I should have pursued that more. Like, I still love reading about history. Yeah. Uh, I and I regret and I oftentimes this is one of the moments where I regret not reading about history more. I was also for a second thinking like, did they kill Jesus? <laughs> no, no, they didn't. Obviously. Yeah. No, I did. I assume we both looked it up independently and found that no, that they were hanging around in Judea like seventy years after Jesus died. There was nothing. Yeah, to it was like. Them. Yeah, it was the zealots. Uh, it's it's actually this is like an this is an instance of incorporating history that I think I don't know I don't mind it like we I feel like when history is incorporated into this Camp Half Blood series that we've got it tends to be more recent history and we tend yeah. to be like oh come on but giving like this. I I did not realize that like the specific like legion that they were a part of was a real thing until after I looked this yeah. up. And giving them that specific like history does work for me because I don't know, there's something if we're just continuing to talk about like differences between Camp Jupiter and Camp Half-Blood, to me like the Roman stuff feels like it should be more grounded in history. Yeah, it it lends more credibility also to the idea that Camp Jupiter is this like actual continuation of the Roman state. Like that's an idea I don't like, but this if that's what you're going for, this is a good way to like and build on that. Yeah, agreed. It's 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 also one of those things like, oh, you're getting kids to learn things. You're getting kids and also adult podcasters to Google things. <laughs> oh, 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 Grover Watch. We get a Grover mention here. We do get a, a very brief, very implicit Grover from Don the Fawn. Don the Fawn? Is it supposed to rhyme? Don- I think so. I don't know. I, I say it rhyming, but I think it's probably an accent thing. Don. Uh, says uh, notices Percy's empathy link with Grover, and remarks that it seems to be being suppressed. Is this our first Grover mention of the of the uh, Heroes of Olympus? I think it might be. I don't think he is even mentioned in um, uh, 
uh, Lost Hero, unless unless kind of by proxy because he's on the Council of Cloven Elders, which is mentioned, but I don't remember if he's actually on that. Yeah, I don't remember, but plus plus one Grover to our chart, so. <laughs> our 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 we we have little stickers we printed out of of Grover, <laughs> and we we stick one onto our laptop screens whenever Grover comes up. We printed off way too many of these at the start of Lightning Thief, and I kind of hate them now. Yeah, I can't really see my screen anymore. <laughs> That's why I have I always have to like adjust my view when I'm reading the summaries because I have to constantly be scrolling so that the text is actually visible below all the Grovers. Yeah, I had to actually like go into my computer's BIOS and uh, turn the brightness up way past what the laptop can actually handle, so I can like read through the stickers. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. It's not having a great effect on the laptop. I've got to say, it overheats very quickly. No. Yeah. Uh, we also get a Jason mention here. Uh, we've. I mean, this is, is you know, this is not for the first time, but we kind of get a better picture of. I think that uh, actually pivoting, I guess, quickly. The fifth cohort, what makes it interesting to me, uh, like because at its base concept, it's like, oh, these are the freaks and geeks. They use in the misfits of camp. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that both of them, like both of the main people in it are very new to Camp Jupiter, that's a turn. Like that's something we haven't gotten up until now necessarily. Yeah, we've always had like Annabeth as the much more experienced one to dish out like exposition and stuff. Which I guess technically Percy should be the experienced one dishing out exposition, but he's got fucking amnesia, so... Yeah, like, the most experienced Camp Jupiter kid they have in their little trio is fucking, what, Frank? And he's been here I think for, it's like, Hazel. less than a year? Is it Hazel? Hazel's been there for a few months longer. Oh, okay. So Frank hasn't been uh, proclaimed by a godly parent yet. Right, okay. I wonder... Oh, okay, I wonder if that's what probatio means. Like, you're yeah. on probation until your godly parent claims you. Yeah, I'm pr- I think that is what it... I think Raina says that during the uh, parade. At the very least, it's implied, I think. That's that's interesting. So, okay, at Camp Half-Blood, originally, if you didn't know who your uh, parent was, you got shoved into a cabin with, like, 700 other kids. Wait. Um, Wait, I just realized... What's that? Another example of the Greek gods being... Well, the, the Olympians being complete assholes is that Percy told them, claim all the kids by the time they're 13. Uh-huh. And they did that way he could see it. Yes. And then in the other camp, they just didn't, because they figured he'd never find out. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, they're just like, who gives a fuck, you know? Like, but no, but all Christ. But apart from that... <laughs> Like, okay, you know, that's a pretty bad situation, but now if you're at Camp Half-Blood now, you'll get claimed pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, if if you go to Camp Jupiter, unless someone claims you, you're going to be fucking cleaning, like, horse shit out of the stables <laughs> for the entire time you're there. And nobody's going to respect you. God, that's fucked. Yeah. I I just really like how shitty Camp Jupiter is. Yeah, it's not as romanticized as I was fearing it would be. It does seem like kind of a shithole. Uh-huh. Oh, we do get another uh, new character in these chapters. Oh, yeah, yeah, Dakota, right? We get, yeah, Dakota, uh, son of Bacchus slash Dionysus, who is weird. Uh, Dakota's a, we- a bit weird, yeah. What, what are your Dakota impressions? I... 
he reads so much like uh rick wanted to do a thing where like yeah one of these underage characters has like a drinking problem Uh uh-huh and someone at hyperion made him take it out (laughs) a little bit yeah like it's i think it's very like it's kind of funny because it's like oh like we all know the little kid who drinks too much sugar and just gets like way too hyperactive yeah so like this is that but extended into an alcohol thing or not like he doesn't literally hyperactive half the time he acts drunk or right right exactly like like we see him going around and like banging like the like the shields like drums and stuff but he's also just like slurring his words and mixing them up and like welcome to the percy party uh-huh like this is it, he's roxy lalonding it <laughs> fuck's sake <laughs> <sighs> he's he's fine like this is a character that we haven't who i'm surprised actually that we have not gotten yet this is sort of our this is sort of our introduction to the idea at camp jupiter that like demigods tend to have like adhd and dyslexia um because that wasn't like there was a little bit of that in the lost hero but mm-hmm. um, we haven't really gotten just like I guess the stereotypical ADHD kid yet. This is true, and that kind of feels I don't know this re- representation there. I guess I was gonna say it's weird that like this is the first time we spent a lot of time with a, a kid of uh, Dionysus because we we never spend much time around Castor or Pollux um, during the uh, PGO. Yeah. So I, I wonder if that's just because like. It's difficult as a children's book author to navigate the children of the booze god. And you kind of avoid that for as long as you can get away with it. That's probably true. And I think it's also a bit of like, I think this is also an instance of showing the differences between the two camps. Mm -hmm. Like there's just not as much, I guess, like division based on which gods are which. So I'm I'm imagining we're just going to like see a bunch of random god kids, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, speaking of, who do you like? If you had to guess, who do you think Frank's godly parent is going to be? Ooh, uh, I I think it's not going to be Apollo. Because he specifically calls Apollo. He's like, I would kind of like for it to be Apollo, so I can do better at archery, but also that'd make me related to Octavian. So. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the by the way, uh, Frank is is my Nazis het pick this week. Really. Uh, yes, for the specific line uh, where uh, Frank looked down at his body like he couldn't quite believe it was his. That's so that's pretty Nosset I think Frank has gender dysphoria uh, and is going to transition and join the Hunters of Artemis to do archery. Yeah, and if that doesn't happen, uh, then we are going to quit the podcast. <laughs> but it's okay, listeners, if you write fan fiction of it happening, we'll bring the podcast back. That's right, that's right. What else do you have to say about these chapters? I want to revisit um, uh, a theory that you mocked me for, that you lampooned me for, you, you made me into a clown in front of our dear listeners over. Okay. Uh, where I I said that it was possible that um, Tristan McLean was maybe like a child of um, Neptune slash Poseidon. I did mock you for this, I believe. Yes, and to be fair, you were completely right too, based on the evidence we had at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, but also, the these chapters kind of open up the possibility that he could be a more distant descendant of Neptune. That's that is true, and that would explain his kind of like weird, kind of like a surfer dude, but lives in a fucking landlocked state. Deal. 
Listen, I knew plenty of kind of like surfer dudes when I lived in Oklahoma. (laughs) Okay, fair point. But also it opens up, I think, an interesting opportunity. What's that? Because one of the things that uh, Nico and I think also Pluto mentions is that um, to Hazel is that a descendant of Neptune will wash away her curse. Now that's not Percy because the fucking weasel word descendant is in there. But if Tristan McLean is a descendant of Neptune, it could be Piper. I didn't think about that. I did not think about that. I don't think this will be true. Like, I, I'm still going to mock you and parody you for this. Um, but I, I didn't, like, think about the wording of the Senate there at all. And, like, that's a, that's a very specific word to use. Yeah. And I, like, I feel like this is going to be, um, there is going to be some cool, interesting twist here. And I'm excited for it. Yeah, Rick, Rick loves to give us a prophecy and then fuck around with the specific wording of it to subvert our expectations. Yeah, I I I have to say I'm I'm still kind of hesitant with the as much as I think introducing like the legacies and the longer lived um like the longer lived demigods is like it's cool, it's a cool element. I I'm Introducing the legacy legacies thing also just sort of makes it feel more like special bloodliney. It does a little bit, but I suppose this the other element of it is I suppose that like the idea of being a kid going to Camp Half Blood was kind of like you know a cool kind of power fantasy thing for little kids to imagine themselves doing, and if like canonically most of them die before they're eighteen. That's kind of just like a really shit, th- shit asterisk to have on that. So maybe it's That's... kind of one of those corrections that he needed to make. That is true. Although at the same time, I think like putting it in Camp Jupiter specifically makes it so that like you don't romanticize it as much, I guess, because we've yeah. seen that this is a fucking like corrupt place. So like we know that there isn't anything like pure about this. Yeah. I- if we if we wanted to extend the maximum benefit of the doubt over that reading, it would be special bloodlines have been introduced in a context where special bloodlines, quote unquote, are being exploited for political gain. Yeah, I mean that because that's kind of like we talked about like oh must the divine right of kings be real? But uh-huh. like if we look at Octavian, people are, don't even know if he's actually related to Apollo. He's not a son of Apollo. He's a he's a legacy. He's some asshole who keeps destroying people's panda bears. Exactly. And so there is a lot of like, I I guess what this is me saying is that I would like this entire book to be set at Camp Jupiter and I would like for it to get really into the politics and the camp life of it all. I would like that too, but the cover of your version has uh, Percy fucking around in Antarctica. <laughs> now this is true and it's very obvious they're going to Alaska this book. I Um, I say Antarctica, Alaska. (laughs) One of the cold places beginning with A. God, they're going back to Quebec. (laughs) Just every book we go there now. I wouldn't hate it. I would a little. Because it would just keep reminding me of that. The the one ice goddess whose name I don't remember. Who I Uh, really genuinely thought was Kronos. Oh, poor Jane. I I think that's going to do it for us today. Oh, wait, sorry, one very, very last final thing. Oh, sure. Uh, I just wanted to call out, uh, well, shout out, actually. You mentioned, like, we hadn't gotten, um, like, stereotypical ADHD kids yet. Uh-huh. 
But I kind of love there's a moment in um, chapter five where Nico, is it Percy is kind of grilling Nico for information. And then Frank comes up, asks about the augury, and Percy gets immediately distracted about the fact that his panda bear got fucking killed. Yeah. And maybe maybe I should cut these books more slack on like people missing quick time events on information. Because all these fuckers have ADHD. This is so true. <laughs> Wait, I'll, okay, I also really want to call out a moment that I like, which is Frank being like, I wish I had ADHD or dyslexia. Like, I only have <laughs> lactose intolerance. Like, that's... <laughs> This is, I don't know. It's like a cute kid thing to say. Yeah. Uh, that I thought what you were going to say is that Nico is good ADHD representation because he's just like getting the nervous energy and like tapping his foot and getting all the jitters and shit. And also that's making skeletons uh, try to like reach out for him and combine. This is simply what happens. This is true. Everyone knows this. Yeah. I guess my, my not so set character for the week is going to be... You know, we, we, we don't have to force it. We can just do it when it comes up. <laughs> Honestly, I, I just mentioned it because we keep forgetting to do the segment, and I was worried that I would forget if I didn't just say it when I saw it in my notes. Oh, okay. Well, we can force it then. Uh, <laughs> we don't have we don't we don't both have to give a character every week. We we've been really kind of this this segment started as let's all pick let's both pick one very specific moment of Percy Jackson being trans, and we've had to shift the goalposts so many fucking times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could go back to doing that, but the problem is we're not always in Percy's perspective now. Yeah, I, I mean, Kane Chronicles and Lost Hero would have been fucking a desert. I, we could just come up with shit, I guess. We could think critically about the text that's been put in front of us, but that's kind of hard. Eh. I think that does it for us today. I think so. <laughs> Our intro and outro is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Our cover art is by Vera at Innsmouth underscore in on Twitter. We are hosted by the Moonshot Network of Podcasts. You can find them at Moonshot Pods. You'll hear one of their promos at the end of this episode. If you want to contact us, you can go to twitter.com slash unwisegirls. There you can find links to our Discord, our email, our personal Twitters, etc. If you want to support us, you can leave us a five-star rating and review. You can tell your friends about us. Or you can go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls, where for just a dollar a month, you get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. For $3 a month, you get the Discord role of a friend of Bacchus, as well as all of our bonus content. Yep, uh, on the last bonus episode, we talked about uh, Young Justice. We talked about the very normal and not at all completely fucking insane show Riverdale. Uh, and also Homestuck. And for $5 a month, you can get the Discord role of Venus's Chosen, all our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of episodes. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank Danny, Tana, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode see you next week camp half blood see you next week camp half blood bye bye
you know, Frosty the Snowman, it's truly the most quintessential Christmas song. It introduces a beloved figure who invites the children to come to him, gets into an altercation with state authorities. Right, the hollering stop. And then he dies, but promises to be back again one day. Frosty is a Christ figure. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Catherine. And we're I'll Be Pod for Castmas, a seasonal podcast where we overanalyze Christmas pop songs and movies and put them into conversation with some unlikely pieces of literature. Don't be a Grinch! Join us on I'll Be Pod for Castmas on the Moonshot Podcast Network.